Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago The President and the Tsar Today is the 22nd of July 2014 and over this period in history 100 years ago, occurred the following events. At 2pm on Monday the 20th of July, the battleship France, that carried the French President and Prime Minister, pulled into harbour at Kronstadt, the Russian naval base in the Gulf of Finland that guards the approaches to St. Petersburg. For the two VIPs on board, it had been a mixed journey since they set off on the previous Thursday morning. Though perfectly happy for a break from the capital, and for a chance to take in the fresh air, French President Raymond Poincaré was troubled by his colleague, the French Prime Minister René Viviani, and his apparent ignorance of the strategic situation. Throughout the voyage, Poincaré had briefed the thoroughly pacifist Viviani on the need for France's militaristic three-year law, as well as the importance of the Franco-Russian Entente to French security. Despite the five-day journey, though, Poincaré remained unimpressed with Viviani as they set their feet upon Russian territory, noting he was extraordinarily ignorant of foreign affairs, which do not interest him and which he does not seem to understand. Viviani was, as Poincaré feared, preoccupied with news filtering in from France, since it was today that the political trial of Madame Callot would take place. Expecting to be greeted by a blast of cold, seeing as they were in the upper north of Europe, Viviani was unhappy to be greeted by a murderous heat as he alighted the France, and claimed he had found the climate worse than tropical Africa. Viviani was overheard asking one of his aides, What are we doing here? But Poincaré knew full well what they were doing there. The Tsar had to be reinforced by the French president, and a better picture of who ruled in St. Petersburg had to be established. It was imperative that Russia remain steadfast in its commitment to France, and that its troubles with Britain were solved before any further crises broke out. 
Poincaré was especially concerned with what he had heard about Sergei Sazonov, the Russian foreign minister, who had a reputation for timidity and hesitation in the midst of a crisis. Poincaré, like Sazonov's Russian colleagues, had criticised the Russian foreign minister's supposedly submissive attitude during the Balkan Wars, and had sought the summit in January 1914, while the Lehman-Sanders crisis was inflaming Russian sensibilities. It was expected that Poincaré would have to do a degree of pushing where Sazonov was concerned, to get the latter to declare his continued firm support for the Entente. While it was hoped that any lack of progress could be made up by informal talks with Tsar Nicholas II, who was said to have been a lukewarm fan of the Entente, aware of its strategic necessity, but not necessarily thrilled at being paired with the aesthetic French Republic. As the two French statesmen got off their vessel, a few metres away the Tsar was lunching with the French military attaché, the Russian ambassador to France, Izvolsky, the foreign minister, Sazonov, and the French ambassador to Russia, Maurice Paleolog. Their conversation was continuing despite the VIPs that had just arrived, and it revolved around the issue of Anglo-Russian difficulties with remaining close friends. In this case, the disputes over Persia were discussed. The Tsar recognised the importance of keeping Britain on side, and was aware of Poincaré's grand plans to maintain the Triple Entente against Germany, and he noted to Paleolog that, Unless she has gone out of her mind, Germany will never attack Russia, France and England combined. Coffee was being served when the Tsar and his lunch party were made aware of the French arrival. As the ambassador, Paleolog, recalled, For a few minutes, there was a prodigious din in the harbour. The guns of the ships and the shore batteries firing, the crews cheering, and the French national anthem answering the Russian national anthem. The cheers of thousands of spectators who had come from St. Petersburg in pleasure boats. As the Russian ship, Alexandria, moved to meet the France, the Tsar mounted the gangway to welcome Poincaré aboard the Russian imperial yacht. Almost immediately, the two became wrapped in a conversation. As Paleolog observed, Seated in the stern, the Tsar and the President immediately entered into a conversation. I should perhaps say a discussion, for it was obvious that they were talking business, firing questions at one another and arguing. As was proper, it was Poincaré who had the initiative. Before long, he was doing all the talking, and the Tsar simply nodded in acquiescence. Although normally containing a flair for the dramatic, Paleolog's account of their meeting does reflect the characters of the two important individuals, one a Romanov royal, the other a bellicose republican. Though Poincaré certainly struck a more striking figure, and though his personality was certainly stronger than the Tsar's, this was perhaps Poincaré's way of compensating for the fact that the Russians held all the cards. In the event of any Balkan crisis, it would be Russia that would either escalate or defuse it, and any military actions against the Central Powers would come in that theatre from Russia. Because of Germany's stringent military plans, any Balkan crisis that erupted into a European war would oddly see France take the first blow, or so its strategists believed. But it is important to remember that Poincaré was in this case thinking and referring to the previous year's crises in the Balkans of which there had been many, rather than the most recent one that he remained unaware of, that threatened to eclipse them all. Thanks to the Baltic journey, Poincaré remained unawares as to the rumours surrounding the Habsburg ultimatum to Serbia that simply would not go away. On the other hand, his Russian guests, from the foreign minister to the Tsar, were well aware of the Austro-Hungarian plans. But such concerns could wait until the morning. 
For now, the French guests would have to endure a level of Russian pomp and ceremony before concrete talks could begin. Poincaré and the Prime Minister were ushered into the palace gardens of the Peterhof Palace, and towards the hall where the two would dine with their Russian hosts in a welcome banquet. Poincaré, up to now unimpressed with what he had seen, was impressed by the gala hall at least, which he noted was lighted by a dozen gorgeous crystal candelabra. Continuing, the wax candles were infinitely more becoming than the electric light, which had not yet been installed. Paleologue too was impressed by what he saw, despite having lived in St. Petersburg for months, and described in his usual style how he felt close to overwhelmed by the brilliance of the uniforms, superb toilettes, elaborate liveries, magnificent furnishings and fittings, in short the whole panoply of pomp and power. The spectacle was such that no court in the world can rival. When the well-dressed ladies caught his eye, Paleologue noted a dazzling display of jewels on the woman's shoulders, and that he was awestruck by a fantastic shower of diamonds, pearls, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, topaz, a blaze of fire and flame. When they closed their gaping mouths, the drink and food began to flow, and the two parties could begin to discuss their concerns. The Tsar as the host went first, assuring Poincaré that he would find the warmest welcome in Russia, because of the mutual sympathies and common interests of the two peoples now bound together as allies for almost a quarter century. The alliance had worked, Nicholas continued, to safeguard the equilibrium and the peace of Europe expressing the hope that the ties which bind us will grow even tighter, the Tsar raised his glass to Poincaré's health and to the glory and prosperity of France. Poincaré, not wanting to be outdone, alluded to the practical necessities of the alliance, noting that the Entente was founded on a community of interests supported by armed forces on land and at sea which know and value one another and have become accustomed to act as brothers. Your Majesty may rest assured, he continued gesturing to Nicholas, while Viviani sighed, that France in the future, as well as always in the past, will, in sincere and in daily cooperation with her ally, pursue the work of peace and civilization. Poincaré then raised a glass to Your Honourable Majesty, Your Majesty the Empress, Your Majesty the Empress Mother, His Imperial Majesty the heir to the throne, and the entire Imperial family. At 10am the next morning on Tuesday the 21st of July, perhaps nursing a hangover but hiding it well, Poincaré met Tsar Nicholas II in his suite in the Peterhof Palace. Both got down to business, with Britain and Persia top of the agenda for the moment. Poincaré informed the Tsar of his concerns, since a number of British statesmen had informed the French president that Several Russian consuls in Persia had broken the terms of the Anglo-Russian Convention of 1907 and behaved themselves as if they were in a conquered territory. Poincaré recorded in his memoirs, which by the way is where historians get details about the majority of events from this summit, that the Russians are, surprisingly, agreed, and conceded that, Frankly, England was perfectly justified in her complaints, and he assured me that there would be no reoccurrence of what were very regrettable incidents. A planned Anglo-Russian naval convention was in the works, which would work wonders in its easing of Poincaré's mood, and the Tsar promised to speed things up where this convention was concerned. Tsar Nicholas then stated that the thing is that no problem should present itself which might jeopardise good relations between England and Russia, and this I am as keen about as you are. 
Nicholas, of course, was aware that he now had very good reasons for improving relations with England. Thanks to revelations over the weekend of Habsburg intentions, the Tsar was told to expect a kind of Austro-Serb reckoning. When this happened, a war seemed at this stage highly possible, and it was imperative that Britain be on side with France and Russia when it came. Nicholas perhaps revealed his concerns without meaning to in his conversations with Poincaré, since the latter recorded in his diary that The Tsar's loudest preoccupation was with Austria. He wanted to know what she was preparing in response to the assassination at Sarajevo. Without spelling it out, Tsar Nicholas told Poincaré, with notable conviction, that In the current situation, the complete accord between our two governments was more necessary than ever. If these ominous statements from his ally did more to increase his sense of foreboding than to ease his concerns, but then Poincaré would have to put his concerns on hold, penciled in as he was to meet the diplomatic corps in St. Petersburg that afternoon. The Tsar did not accompany him on this exercise, perhaps because he feared that the strikes of the day before would manifest themselves again. Nicholas's absence initially puzzled Poincaré, but he soon got over it as he went to meet the foreign dignitaries. At about 1.30pm, he met Paleolog, where he had embarked at Nicholas Bridge, and he joined in a ceremony with the town's mayor. Poincaré visited the nearby fortress of St. Peter and St. Paul, and he laid a wreath on the tomb of Alexander III, who had been the father of the Entente, as Poincaré understood it. The party was then escorted by an honour guard of Cossacks along the banks of the River Neva into a horse-drawn carriage to the French embassy, where Poincaré would meet the foreign deputations at 4pm. Poincaré first met the German ambassador to Russia, which may have been an awkward event, except that this German, Friedrich Portelet, was half French, and could speak to Poincaré in detail about his plans for a holiday in Provence, where he would be visiting family. Portelet discussed the region and its sites, and Poincaré ended up finding the ambassador an agreeable person with a pretty knack for evasive phrases and well-turned compliments. Because the informal meeting between Poincaré and the ambassador of his country's worst enemy had gone off without a hitch, there was no reason to expect anything negative to come from his next meet-and-greet with the British ambassador to Russia, Sir George Buchanan. Poincaré discussed with Buchanan the issue of Persia, and Poincaré said that the Brit was extremely courteous, if a little cold. Buchanan claimed he wanted the 1907 convention to reflect the circumstances of the time, and he hoped the Russians would support the effort. Poincaré took the opportunity to inform Buchanan about the conversation he had had with the Tsar earlier in the day, where Nicholas had encouraged negotiations on the issue and stated England's right to cry foul at the situation. Buchanan's mood lifted at this. Poincaré claimed he became very pleased, and then the British ambassador, perhaps in his mood of positivity, made a sly reference to the prevailing rumours regarding the Austrian ultimatum. Though Buchanan had not been told by Sir Edward Grey, the British Secretary for Foreign Affairs, about the previous day's leaking of information, he had talked with the Serbian ambassador to Russia earlier today, and discovered then that the Serbs expected Vienna to create some incident that would furnish her with a pretext for attacking Serbia. No doubt, the Serb ambassador had gotten word of the events of the previous days due to sympathetic officials within Sazanov's own ministry, but concrete details were not forthcoming. Still, it had stuck with Buchanan, and he had thus elected to tell Poincaré of his concerns. He has gathered, Poincaré recalled, from the Serbian minister that some violent Austrian note may be sent to Belgrade. 
Incredibly, the efforts to keep the ultimatum secret had so badly failed that whispers of it now reached the top officials in the Russian capital. One can imagine St. Petersburg buzzing with intrigue as word begins to disseminate throughout various state officials, be they diplomats or Russian bureaucrats, about the Austrian plans. Though they would have been confined to whispers, with little concrete proof as yet, the very fact that they managed to spread up the chain suggests the readiness of others to believe their contents, or at least that the excitement at what an ultimatum would mean for the rest of Europe. In the event, at this time it did not matter whether everyone that heard it believed the news. What did matter was that Vienna did not know that their secret had escaped, and that the very orchestration of their plans which had counted on surprise and revelation once the French president had left the Russian capital, were now in tatters because that same president was now furnished with the same rumours as everyone else. Would he pursue the whispers? Poincaré's opportunity came within minutes, because the next foreign dignitary he spoke with was the Austro-Hungarian ambassador to Russia, Count Friedrich Zapari. Count Zapari effectively walked into a backhanded buzzsaw, because again, as with the previous meetings between himself and Sazanov, Poincaré did not seem willing to simply ask the Hungarians straight out if the news of the ultimatum was true. Have you any news from Serbia? Poincaré asked Zapari. Zapari replied coldly that the judicial inquiry is advancing. When Poincaré pointed out that such inquiries tended to increase tensions in the Balkans, Zapari replied even colder still. Monsieur the President, we cannot suffer a foreign government to allow murderous attacks against our sovereignty to be prepared on its territory. In response to this, Poincaré gently warned the ambassador that, in the present state of public feeling in Europe, every government should be twice as cautious as usual. Poincaré then continued that, this Serbian business could be settled with a little goodwill. Poincaré then concluded his war of words by finishing with the ominous, Serbia has very warm friends in the Russian people, and Russia has an ally, France. There are plenty of complications to be feared. As Poincaré moved to the next dignitary, Zapari was left fuming. He wired back to Vienna that the French president had been tactless, and that his apparent reassurances of cooperation had sounded like a threat. When he compared Poincaré's attitude with that of Sazanov on Saturday, it seemed both strange and rude of the French president to behave in such a way. Zapari concluded by telling Vienna that Monsieur Poincaré will have anything but a calming effect here. Zapari was not alone with his issues over the conversation. I'm not satisfied with this conversation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Poincaré told Paleolog shortly after speaking with Zappari. The ambassador has obviously been instructed to say nothing. Austria has a coup in store for us. Sazanov must stand firm and we must back him up. Poincaré, Viviani and Paleolog then made their way to the French hospital before arriving at the French embassy for another banquet at 6pm. Though on the surface Poincaré remained his usual self, he had been further troubled that day by news from Serbia that the French ambassador there had had a breakdown on the 15th of July and thus no word would be forthcoming from Belgrade for a while. Without up-to-date news on Serbia, Poincaré's first real bit of news for the Balkan country revolved around the ultimatum, and Poincaré, still mostly in the dark, felt even more at the mercy of foreign information, such as that revealed by the British ambassador about the ultimatum. Early the next morning on the 22nd of July, Louis de Robien, a diplomatic attaché to the French embassy, hopefully by now accustomed to the ways of St. Petersburg, noted on the situation. Already, in the discussions, one sensed that the atmosphere had changed overnight. We were speaking overtly about a war, which no one had imagined possible a few days previously. Importantly for Sazanov, though, Poincaré told him about his concerns that night on Tuesday the 21st of July. Buoyed by the French president's example, and no doubt determined to get to the bottom of the issue himself, Sazanov felt he would be better served by paying a visit to the German ambassador. He began that Tuesday night by reminding Ambassador Portale of Russia's position, that the Sarajevo incident on the 28th of June had been the deed of a few individuals for which an entire state could not be held responsible. Sazanov then compared Austrian demands on Belgrade because of the acts of the terrorists to Russia threatening Sweden because so many Russian revolutionaries took refuge there. Further, Sazanov added icily, Belgrade's dreams about a greater Serbia was Vienna's fault, since it had misgoverned the Serbs to begin with. Bortelet attempted to meet these criticisms as well as he could, but he was taken aback by Sazanov's momentum, and the German must have known that Russia was aware of the Austrian plans. Since Sazanov was referring to the assassination, as well as the issue of responsibility and the action he expected Vienna to take. If Austria-Hungary was determined to break the peace, Sazanov continued, she should realise this time that she would have to reckon with Europe. Russia could not regard any step taken at Belgrade, which was intended to humiliate Serbia, with indifference. Portale promised there would be no humiliation, but Sazanov was unimpressed, and warned that, Russia would not be able to endure it if Austria-Hungary issued threatening language to Serbia or undertook military measures against her. As a final expose on how the Entente felt, what they knew and what they expected Vienna to do next, Sazanov told the German ambassador, Whatever happens, there must be no talk of an ultimatum. By drawing this line on the sand, Sazanov had dared the Habsburg statesmen to cross it for they would unleash a European war if they did. Miles away in Vienna, though, oblivious to either Russian awareness or the leakage of his secrets that had led to it, Austro-Hungarian Foreign Minister Leopold von Berchtold 
had already finished the process of crafting and arranging the ultimatum. Berkdald was preparing to follow to the letter his plans, since he remained in the dark himself as to the fact that his policy had long since been exposed. On the next morning, the 22nd of July, the day before the ultimatum was due to be sent to Serbia, Poincaré was visiting the Tsar's family in the Villa Alexandria. He found the four young archduchesses, Olga, Tatiana, Maria and Anastasia, delightful in their simplicity, and proceeded to wow them with expensive diamond watch bracelets from Paris. However, it was for the ten-year-old Zarevich, Alexis, that he reserved the honour of the Cordon of the Grand Cross an act which Nicholas thanked Poincaré for profusely, but which had actually been the idea of Maurice Paleologue to present. Presenting the young and sickly heir with his first foreign decoration, Poincaré also presented him with furniture befitting a sovereign's library. Suffering from haemophilia, which made him very weak, Alexis was protected by his also quite ill mother Alexandra. Attempting to impress upon the Tsar's family his friendliness, Poincaré may have suspected that Alexis would not live to rule the country as his father did. However, it would be impossible for him to have predicted that in less than four years the entire Romanov royal family would be dead. Slaughtered by the revolutionaries, they failed to see coming. Poincaré then went back to the Peterhof for lunch with a French deputation, as well as his Volsky and Sazanov. It was here that Poincaré and Viviani met Count Fredericks for the first time. Fredericks was an aristocratic cavalry commander of the old Russian stock. Well-liked and charismatic, he attempted to cheer up Viviani, who now appeared close to a breakdown. At half-three, the group boarded a train to Krasno-Silo, where a series of military displays and toasts were due to take place. Viviani could and should have relaxed, since the meat of the summit was essentially over, and only the toasts and parade watching remained. For Viviani, though, the entire summit was beginning to gnaw at his thirty pacifist persona, and events at home were adding to his nerves. In addition to this, he had terrible liver problems, aggravated by stress, and such ailments would only get worse as the events progressed. After the half-hour journey, the parades began, and contained the usual pomp that was now a hallmark of the summit. The elite of St. Petersburg society crammed into the adjoining stands that surrounded the route of the parade, while Russian soldiers saluted their Tsar in a loud shout. The procession lasted about 90 minutes, concluding with a rounding rendition of both national hymns and a blessing for the Tsar and Holy Russia. By the time it was over, Nicholas was so concerned for Viviani's health that he called in a local doctor from town. Later that day, on Wednesday the 22nd of July, the group then went to the estate of Grand Duke Nicholas, who was in fact grandson of Tsar Nicholas I, and was a prince of the blood. Seen as a strong man and a determined francophile, Duke Nicholas's personality commended him to the Russian nobility, and many were said to have wished for his succession over the current Tsars. At six foot six, Duke Nicholas also towered over many in the country, and was a commanding presence in his own estate. The French ambassador to Russia, Morris Paleologue was the first to arrive and give his account of the Duke's estate, which as usual paints for us the most luxurious picture. Three long tables were set in half-open tents around a garden which was in full flower. The beds had just been watered and from them the fresh scent of flowers rose into the warm air. Paleologue then described how he was given a boisterous welcome 
by the two Montenegrin princesses, one of whom, Anastasia, was the wife of Duke Nicholas. The two princesses were the daughters of the remarkable King Nicola of Montenegro, and seemed in this instance to be more excitable and belligerent than most European statesmen. With excited expressions, Anastasia gestured to Poincaré at the setup on the three long tables, and the flower arrangements set among them. At the review tomorrow, the bands will play nothing but the March Lorraine. I've had a telegram from my father today. He tells me we shall have war before the end of the month. What a hero my father is. He is worthy of the Iliad. Just look at this little box I always take about with me. It's got some Lorraine soil in it. Real Lorraine soil. I picked it from the frontier when I was in France with my husband two years ago. Look there at the table of honour. It's covered with thistles. I didn't want to have any other flowers there. They're Lorraine thistles, don't you see? I gathered several plants on the annexed territory, brought them here and had the seeds sown in my garden. Melitza, go on talking to the president. Tell him what today means to us while I go and receive the Tsar. This incredible anecdote, recorded from Paleologue's memoirs, is especially revealing because it demonstrates the eye for detail that the princess had. Poincaré, having been born in Lorraine and borne witness to its occupation by Germany in the early 1870s, would surely appreciate the gesture, especially if he discovered the lengths to which Anastasia went to gather the thistles. Christopher Clark, in his book The Sleepwalkers, provides not only the source for the aforementioned quote from Paleologue's diary, but also notes in detail how Anastasia, while accompanying her husband on manoeuvres in France in 1912, sent someone across the border into Lorraine to pick up the thistles. Once they had acquired them, she brought the thistle seeds back to Russia, cared for them until they grew, then mixed Lorraine soil with Russian soil to symbolise the Franco-Russian alliance. Continuing the process, she handed them over to her gardener, and informed him that if the plants were to die in his watch, then he would lose his job. Fortunately for the gardener, they survived, and were plentiful enough by summer 1914 to be decoratively strewn across each of the three tables, as a symbolic sign of the Montenegrin princess's affinity towards the French, which rubbed off on her husband, the Grand Duke, who was among the most Franco and Slavophile in the Russian court, and who urged action in the Balkans, should Serbia come under fire. As the champagne began to flow, Anastasia continued to talk excitedly of the coming war, which she expected soon, and which she hoped would establish France and Russia as predominant European powerhouses, with Lorraine, of course, back in its rightful place. There's going to be a war, she exclaimed to the French ambassador. There will be nothing left of Austria. You're going to get back Alsace and Lorraine. Our armies will meet in Berlin. Germany will be destroyed. With words like these, it is likely Anastasia could have gone on to produce a belligerent tirade that would put the Austrian chief of staff Konrad von Hotzendorf to shame, but her tongue was held when the Tsar gave her a stern look. In the event of war, it would after all be Anastasia's husband, as Grand Duke, that would command the Russian armies, so it was perhaps not wise to give the game away yet. Mischievously looking back at Paleologue, who seems to have been in the centre of her outburst, Anastasia remarked brilliantly, I must restrain myself. The Emperor has his eye on me. Though Paleologue was able to absorb a great deal of excited Montenegrin cheer, Poincaré was taken aback by the extent of the princess's questioning, 
who inquired about the nature of Austria and the Balkans and general war readiness. Earlier in the day on that Wednesday, the 22nd of July, Poincaré had been given an uncomfortable message by the French ambassador in Rome, who had gleaned from Italian intelligence that Germany will make no attempt to restrain Austria. In Vienna, they believe that Russia will let Serbia be violated. This report, coupled with the Montenegrin whispers in Poincaré's ear about the weakness of Sazonov, who Poincaré did not know had thrown a serious amount of veiled threats at the German ambassador the night before, Poincaré decided then for himself that the Tsar was more decided on the course of the alliance than the Russian foreign minister. Though whatever dithering Sazonov may have engaged in would hopefully, Poincaré believed, be made up for by Tsar Nicholas's actions. The night ended in a mood of belligerence and foreboding. Though the next morning on Thursday the 23rd of July, the very day Austria-Hungary was due to place its ultimatum in the hands of the Serbian government, everyone seemed invigorated enough by the country air to manage another day of suggestive action. Even Viviani, who seemed healed after resting the night before, and appeared thoroughly relieved to be going home that evening, seemed ready for another day. A further parade took place, and Anastasia's promise rang true, as the French delegation were greeted to a playing of thoroughly French marches by the military band, mostly those sourced from Lorraine and Alsace. Paleologue captured the mood of the time, and noted that the nod to symbolism was not lost on the French president. 60,000 men took part, a magnificent pageant of might and majesty. The infantry marched past to the strains of March de Sambre et Muse and the March Lorraine. What a wealth of suggestion in this military machine set in motion by the Tsar of all the Russians before the President of the Allied Republic, himself a son of Lorraine. The Tsar was mounted at the foot of the mound upon which was the imperial tent. Poincaré was seated on the Tsaritsa's right in front of the tent. The few glances he exchanged with me showed me that our thoughts were the same. Following the parade, everyone withdrew into the Tsar's tent for caviar and a meeting between Poincaré and Russia's most important military minds. At 6pm, they followed Nicholas aboard his yacht, which would then take them to the French vessel awaiting the two parties for a grand dinner that would mark the end of the summit. Though a short downpour had damaged the floral arrangements on the deck, and though no one praised the dishes, as Poincaré later noted, the farewell dinner was still a success. The Tsar and President were engrossed in conversation for the majority of the night, and at times alone, for what seemed like an eternity, according to Paleologue. In between the first and second courses, Viviani, now back on form, had ordered drawn up a press communique, had ordered drawn up a press communique designed to summarise their summit to the French and world media. The first draft read, The two governments have discovered that their views and intentions for the maintenance of the European balance of power, especially in the Balkan Peninsula, are absolutely identical. However, Viviani didn't like this draft. It involves us too much in Russia's Balkan policy, he complained, and ordered a new draft be written up. The new one was approved by both statesmen, and read, The visit which the President of the Republic has just paid to His Majesty the Emperor of Russia has given the two friendly and allied governments an opportunity of discovering that they are in entire agreement in their views on the various problems, which concern for peace and the balance of power in Europe has laid before the powers, especially in the Balkans. 
Viviani eventually had the communique altered so that, rather than read, especially in the Balkans, it read, especially in the East. It seemed that, even at this late in the game, the French Prime Minister was not willing to launch his country towards war for the sake of the Balkans, despite the iron convictions of the President. The latter's farewell toast emphasised the two state similarities though, rather than allude to their disagreements. Poincaré gestured to the Tsar when he declared that France and Russia have the same ideal of peace, in strength, honour and self-respect. It drew rapturous applause from the Russians, and Poincaré could feel confident that in the event of the rumoured dispatch of an ultimatum to Serbia, both he and the Tsar would be able to ensure that the Entente did not back down. Hopefully, Poincaré upheld, he would be able to persuade Viviani to stand firm, while Nicholas moved Sazonov to act. Little thought was given at the summit, or indeed within Poincaré's memoirs, of the right Austria had to take legitimate measures against Serbia in the aftermath of the assassinations. Perhaps, as was the case to many in Europe, the assassinations of June the 28th seemed like a world ago, encompassed as Europe now was in its own miniature crises. Poincaré could only have imagined that to the west in Vienna, as the French delegation were preparing to leave for home, Berchtold was in fact readying the Austro-Hungarian ambassador to Serbia to deliver the ultimatum to the Serbian Prime Minister in Belgrade. After three days' worth of provocative gestures and warnings in St. Petersburg that would only reach the relevant capitals and statesmen when it was too late, Austria-Hungary was about to commit itself to a completely different outcome than what it expected. The line was about to be crossed. Within hours, the most influential document, perhaps of the 20th century, was about to be delivered, courtesy of a government who had absolutely no idea that its supposed secret was the worst kept secret in Europe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.